budget will ask Democrats and Republicans to make the needed commitment to eliminate the HIV epidemic in the United States within 10 years. We have made incredible strides. Incredible. That was President Donald Trump during his State of the Union address declaring that he would lead his administration to eliminate the HIV epidemic in the United States within 10 years. Eliminate. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined us. Uh, We want to kick off a week of shows that we're going to do about health issues and health policies today with discussion of HIV. And we want to start there with what the president said in his State of the Union address. No doubt the nation has made really great strides in the fight against the disease, but the Centers for Disease Control has reported that the rate of decrease in new infections recently plateaued. And for some populations, they're actually going up. So is that goal of reducing new infections by 90 percent by 2030 feasible? Or was this just kind of a political stunt, kind of something to say to get people motivated toward the idea of eliminating HIV with the full knowledge that we won't quite get there in that kind of a time window? Joining us now to talk more about what the president said and where we are with eliminating HIV in the United States is Jennifer Cates. She is the vice president and director of global health and HIV policy at the Kaiser Family Foundation. Jennifer Cates, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning. Welcome. So let's start with the president's goal there. Uh, In some ways, I guess you could see this as kind of like a moonshot, right? John Kennedy says in the early 60s, we are going to go to the moon when everyone thinks, well, that's really not possible in the time frame that he set out. But it inspired uh, the nation to rally around that cause. And we eventually did get there. Do you see this as the same kind of thing? Or is this even less realistic given where we are right now? Yeah, it was very good questions. I mean, it's certainly unusual when a president uses a State of the Union address to make that kind of bold announcement uh, on a health issue. Um, this, in this particular case, I think there is an element of let's motivate, let's have a rallying cry, let's uh, work towards this. But the reality is, it is possible um, to to reach the goal that was stated, which to to reduce. It's actually elimination is a bit of a, st- a stretch, but to reduce new HIV infections by 90 percent by 2030, it's actually possible because all of the tools, the public health and science tools that would allow a nation to do that exist. And there's proof of concept that's happened in other places. I think there's a lot of ingredients that need to go into that um, to that equation to get there. So it's not a given that it could happen, but it definitely is possible that it could happen. Hmm. So what has contributed to the leveling off and the the decrease in the rate of new HIV infections in the United States in recent years? That's sort of a downside of of this issue right now. Correct. So in the United States, we and in a lot of places, the, the, the epidemic was raging in the 1980s when very little was known about it. It was spreading. Um, you know, this is way before there were medications to treat people with HIV, even before uh, an HIV test existed. So the epidemic was out of control and new infections were skyrocketing. Um, but eventually, within about 10 plus years, because um, scientists and public health officials and, the, and communities began to understand HIV, uh, the new infection rates started to come down. However, they never really 
um, can't, you know, they reached a point and just leveled off. And in making further progress has really proven challenging. And why? Well, um, part of the issue is in the United States, we've had a fragmented healthcare system. And so the system uh, that people would potentially, you know, get all of their, their services, their prevention, their treatment services has been fairly fragmented, particularly before the ACA. And then the second reason is that in the United States, we have what's called a concentrated epidemic. HIV is highly concentrated in certain communities mm-hmm. and certain geographies. And if you don't focus and concentrate intense you know, efforts in those places, you're just not going to make the difference that's needed. Yeah. So that's sort of where we've, we've been. And then you throw in, in, you know, into this stigma, persistent stigma on HIV, which is, has gotten better, but it's still there. People are afraid to learn their status. People are afraid to let people know if they are positive. And there's, people face re- repercussions in their lives. So it's a really complex situation. So, so the Trump administration has also focused a lot of effort on the idea of killing the Affordable Care Act, or at least narrowing it significantly. Is that maybe a contradictory goal with the idea of reducing HIV infections as dramatically as they say they want to? Yeah, it actually works in the opposite direction. So when this plan got announced, so the president um, announced the plan in the state of, or the idea in the State of the Union, and then shortly thereafter, the uh, HHS, the Department of Health and Human Services, introduced the details of the plan um, and talked about what they were going to do and how, how they were going to approach it. And I, w- I, again, would just say it's very much steeped in, in public health and science uh, g- goals and tools. Um, however, uh, at the same time, the president has called for eliminating the Affordable Care Act, for getting rid of the Medicaid expansion, for basically cutting, you know, get, cutting back on, on the protections that people with HIV and those at risk have relied on. If those things were to happen, it would really affect the ability of the U.S. to reach the goal stated in the ending the HIV epidemic plan. I, I won't say that they w- wouldn't be successful. It would just be a lot harder. It really kind of cuts the legs out from under um, the whole effort because the, the, the sort of infrastructure and fabric that the Affordable Care Act has set up across the country is a key part of what has already started to help uh, on, on uh, combat HIV, but w- it will be needed going forward. Hmm. Uh, my guest is Jennifer Cates. She's the vice president and director of global health and HIV policy at the Kaiser Family Foundation. We're talking about President Trump's declaration that he's going to lead his administration to eliminate the HIV epidemic in the United States within 10 years. Yes, he, you heard that right. He said he will eliminate it. But is that a feasible goal? Is that a realistic target to be looking at? Or is that maybe just a a political statement that he intends to motivate people to work harder in the spaces that they have been to reduce the rate of new HIV infections? If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Uh, Tell us what you think about the president's goal. Tell us what you think about what might be being done right now to meet that goal and whether you think it's realistic. Also, we would love to hear from people who are infected with HIV uh, about what they think about all of this. Uh, is this, uh, is this reflective of a new concentration, I guess, on the disease and the need to uh, reduce uh, infection rates and, and things like that? Uh, or does this kind of ring hollow to your ears? Does this sort of contradict some of the experiences 
that you're having uh, in the healthcare system and with health policy. As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can uh, go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, uh, and, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. Before we get to phones, Jennifer, I want to talk a little bit about perceptions. You know, HIV used to be something we talked about all the time, and it does seem a little bit now as though a lot of people believe it's a disease of the past, that we've gotten to a place where it's treatable and it doesn't sort of rise to the level of public health urgency that it used to. Uh, do Do you find that to be true as well? Yeah, I mean, we, we've definitely seen that. And, um, you know, th- this has been a challenge, right? You, there have been so many successes in, in the fight against HIV, particularly uh, HIV antiretroviral treatment, which uh, everyone who becomes HIV positive should, is recommended to be on treatment right away. And if you are on treatment and can suppress the virus in your, in your body, not only are you able to live, you know, almost potentially a normal lifespan, if you're virally suppressed, you won't uh, uh, transmit HIV to a negative partner. So it's, it's revolutionized um, the environment uh, for people living with HIV and those at risk. But it, at the same time, the sort of early days where everybody who was sick, it was a death sentence, are, aren't there, which is great. But it's hard for people to then relate to the fact that we still have an epidemic in the United States. I will say we, we just did a poll, just came out uh, about a week ago, and we did find that most Americans still see HIV as a serious problem in the U.S., um, but there is a lack of awareness and knowledge about some of the key things, challenges that remain and, and, and also the progress made. So it's still an uphill battle to, to remind people that this is an epidemic in our country, um, that it affects certain populations more than others, and that even though the tools are there to, to, to potentially eliminate HIV, um, we have a lot to do to get to that point. You know, when you talk about the populations that are still hard hit, by this, you also bump up against some political obstacles, I think, to prioritizing the health of that population. In other words, for some people, I think it is maybe difficult to think of that effect on those populations as urgent as it would be if it were still something that was affecting a wider, a wider swath of the population. Yeah, so you're, you're mentioning a really important thing. So in the United States, the populations that tend to be hardest hit are gay and bisexual men and other men who have sex with men, are, and particularly those who are black and Latino. Um, the uh, people of color in general um, it, uh, have much higher rates than, than whites, their counterparts who are white. Um, and and population and in some parts of the country, heterosexual women, particularly minority women, um, and so it, populations that historically have been either faced increased stigma or discrimination or many more barriers to getting healthcare access are the very populations that are most affected. And particularly if you look at gay and bisexual men, and I, and I should also mention transgender women who are really at much higher risk in the United States than other populations. They're the populations that ha- do continue to face. Barriers, both real, bar- you know, real structural barriers to getting what they, the care that they need, as well as discrimination and uncertainty and fear about going into the healthcare system. So it creates a sort of a compounded challenge. And as you mentioned, if if the if those populations are stigmatized and not seen as priorities, it's going to affect the ability to 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 combat this epidemic. 
I will say in the plan that was announced, ending the HIV epidemic, a plan for America that was announced by the Department of Health and Human Services, they do specifically talk about the need to reach all populations that are at greatest risk and to address stigma and to reach um, gay and bisexual men and transgender women as well. So they have acknowledged that this is a barrier that they have to overcome. Again, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. We especially would love to hear from people who are infected with HIV about how all this falls on their ears. This idea of eliminating new infections within 10 years is something that President Donald Trump has said he would like to achieve. Uh, Give us a call. Tell us what you think about that, whether it's achievable and whether your experience with the healthcare system and with health policy suggests that this is something that could really happen. Let's start with Alex in Gross Point. Alex, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi there. Thanks for taking my call. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know we aren't uh, that far into the conversation yet where we're talking about these um, laws that locally apply to us in Michigan here. Um, but I just wanted to touch on that briefly. Uh, I work in healthcare and um, in Michigan and in many states, um, there are laws that require. Um, for the testing of HIV uh, on patients who, um, whose blood or, 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 or um, bodily fluids have come in contact with um, healthcare workers. So, for example, if I am stuck with a, a needle that has just been inside of a patient, then that patient is automatically going to be tested for HIV. Mm-hmm. And so what I think is really important about that is we recognize just how communicable this disease is and so um, the fact that Michigan has these laws that make it illegal to not to disclose your HIV status um, are, are not necessarily a bad thing. The, the disease is highly transmittable, highly communicable. Um, so I think what's important about that is we should, just like we've, we require these uh, tests on patients in hospitals, we should use the same idea and, and really stick to it requiring that people disclose their HIV status. Now, I say that with the caveat that we really must work on this stigma of, uh, that surrounds this, uh, this uh, virus, HIV, and the disease AIDS, um, because we want to encourage people to disclose their status, positive or negative, it doesn't matter, uh, because of the severity of this disease and just how um, difficult it can be to treat it. Sure, um, sure. So I don't think it's impossible to reach the goal in 10 years. Um, but I think that if we're going to do that, we need to um, have the same law in more than just the 19 states that have it. Um, but we also need to, at the same time, really address the stigma that surrounds the disease. Right. Uh, Alex, I really appreciate the call and the insight there. A little later in the show, we are going to have a discussion specifically about these laws, uh, that, uh, that including in, in Michigan, that require disclosure of HIV. We're going to talk with uh, a professor who's, who says that this is uh, punishing people who have diseases, and we're going to talk with a state rep here in Michigan about a bill to try to reverse those laws. You may want to call back in during those segments and talk with them as well. But, but Jen Cates, I want to get you to react to what yeah, Alex yeah. said there. 
Yeah, hi, Alex. Um, there's a lot packed into what you said. I think you, you touched on the fact that in a healthcare setting, if a healthcare worker is potentially exposed, there's testing that's done. And, there, and part of the reason for that is there's actually medications to take if you have been exposed to HIV um, post-exposure prophylaxis. It's very, very effective. Uh, in a non-healthcare setting, and just in terms of you know people in their lives and their relationships, it is really complicated to require or, or have laws forcing people to disclose on, for a lot of reasons. One is, in many states, people who um, uh, can be criminalized um, for, uh, for if someone else becomes infected, if they haven't disclosed. Why is that problematic? Well, it's criminalizing behavior that people um, are, are, should, should not be criminalized for. And in many cases with HIV, people with HIV either might not know they're infected because you can have a long latency period and, and be HIV positive and not know it. So it's... Um, and. That's one issue. The other issue is um, that there actually are medications available, as I mentioned earlier. If you take your antiretroviral medications regularly as prescribed and become durably virally suppressed, you actually pose no risk to your partner. So the idea of, of mandatory disclosure kind of runs counter to what we know works in public health. Um, there's also PrEP, a pre-exposure prophylaxis. Um, people at risk could, should, should be recommended to take PrEP if they take PrEP before they are exposed to HIV, their risk is significantly reduced. So what we know from public, not, it's not just stigma, as you mentioned, Alex, but also what we know about public health um, is, it moves us into a whole new territory where those kinds of laws actually can really risk putting people, at, um, uh, uh, making people afraid of interacting with the healthcare system and, and creating some really unintended consequences that could be harmful. And I'm glad you're going to talk about it in your program later today. Yeah. Yeah. Alex, again, we really appreciate the call and the insights there. Let's go to Anka in Royal Oak. Anka, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning, Stan. Good hey. morning, John. Um, I am a transgender woman, a white transgender woman, and I have lived a, uh, I guess you would say, safe lifestyle for 13 years. I've been celibate from uh, the time I was diagnosed. Hmm. And, yeah, there's a lot of stigma to it. I think the caller, the, the gentleman you're talking to, he wants to talk about disclosure, disclosure, disclosure. That's only going to make things worse. Um, I can find all kinds of people that are willing to date me who live an unsafe lifestyle and who are also um, infected. But I can't find other people. As soon as I tell them that you're HIV positive, I mean, for, as soon as I tell them I'm transgender, but if I tell them I'm HIV positive first, um, they're tuned out to any kind of possibility. And so, so Anka, I mean, that, that, that sounds like a very difficult personal life to have to, to, to navigate. Uh, so what you choose, though, is to not disclose but then not engage in sex. Is that what you're saying? Um, I think I, if, I, if I could find the right partner, I would engage, and I'm still looking forward to that. Uh, I've been separated by my partner for some years, so um, unfortunately, physically, so I don't want to get into that detail. But, um, you know, if they were around, uh, I would probably be participating. But, I mean, I also choose a certain type of lifestyle, and that is that I'm not a part of a hookup culture. But I want to address um, what your caller had said. Uh -huh. I've been undetectable, all right? Non-detectable means non-transmittable for 13 years. So, yeah, there was a point of time where I could highly infect you just like that. But my partner, who I said I've been separated from, mm -hmm. she didn't get it. And we're together. Mm -hmm. So 
there is a period of time. It's not like you get it and you're instantly infected. Right, you know, right. can infect somebody. Uh, Jenna will tell you that, I'm sure, uh, as any other professional. It takes time to build up in your system. All right. And once it's built up, then you can do it. But sure. once you have it control, I've been in managed care. Now, if I had to do this on my own, I'd be dead by now because the cost of the, the, med, the uh, meds right. is just astronomical. Yeah. I don't believe anything that Trump or the administration says. They've messed with, H, uh, with, um, with HIV uh, prevention and eradication already, and they'll do it again. Mm. And this, anything that has to do with that group of people, yeah. uh, the grotesque, odious perverts, I like to call them, <laughs> we're not going to ever get anything out of them for the okay. LGBTQ community that's real. Okay. I really appreciate uh, the call and uh, that cute acronym there at the, at the end. Uh, uh, Jen Cates, react to what? Uh, yeah, Anka yeah, a couple of things. Um, thanks so much, Anka, uh, to to share your your experience. I mean, one of the things that you said that's just so important for the audience to know is un, undetectable equals untransmittable. If you have an undetectable viral load, you will not transmit HIV, and that is a very powerful relatively recent um, uh, scientific uh, awareness. Um, this was something that many, you know, many studies were done to sort of look at how, how, how sure that is, and it's, that's definitive at this point um, by science. So it's quite powerful. Um, and I also wanted to say that in all of the analyses that have been done around people at risk for HIV and those who have HIV, people who know their HIV status don't want to put anyone else at risk. It's, it's really the most transmissions of HIV occur because somebody doesn't know they're infected. And that's not something disclosure is going to address. Mm. Really, the, the best way to address that is getting more people to get tested, as well as getting people um, uh, virally suppressed, get them on antiretrovirals. And that's really a big goal of this initiative. The other thing that is really important in the United States that um, people, listeners should know about if they have HIV is something called the Ryan White HIV AIDS program, mm -hmm. which is the nation's um, uh, federal program that provides funding to states and local, local um, counties and cities to provide HIV services, outpatient services, including medications. It's, it's pretty much the lifeline for many, many people with HIV. Um, and so hopefully uh, listeners know about it, but if you don't, you could always get that information from your health department. Okay. Jennifer Cates, Vice President and Director of Global Health and HIV Policy at the Kaiser Family Foundation. Thanks very much for being here with us on Detroit Today. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Up next, we're going to talk about the criminalization of HIV and how that plays out right here in Michigan. We want to continue to hear from you what you think about health policy as it concerns HIV. Uh, we want to especially continue to hear from people who are infected with HIV about your take on these laws. Also, don't forget, if you have to miss any of today's show, you don't have to miss out on the conversation entirely. Just go to iTunes or wherever you download podcasts. You can download and subscribe to to Detroit today. You can take us with you and then listen when you are ready. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. In the early days of the AIDS epidemic, many states passed laws that were designed to punish people with HIV and other diseases for not disclosing their illnesses. Michigan was one of those states. 
But many of these laws were enacted before major advancements in antiviral treatments changed the very nature of what it means to be HIV positive or to have AIDS. Why were these punitive laws enacted in the first place, though, to deal with a medical issue? And how can Michigan modernizing its laws contribute to lowering the number of new infections? Also, what else can states be doing to help meet this goal of eliminating new HIV infections by 2030. That's where we want to continue the conversation here on Detroit Today. And joining us now to talk more about it is Trevor Hoppe. He was an assistant professor at UNC Greensboro. Trevor, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So um, you've written a book called Punishing Disease, and you argue that America has often tried to control social problems punitively and that similar methods have extended to controlling diseases like HIV. Can you talk a little bit about this history and how it plays out today? Absolutely. So in the 1980s when uh, HIV was first being diagnosed around the country, there was a great deal of fear and kind of paranoia that uh, the disease was kind of uh, spread, particularly from high-risk communities like men who have sex with men to the general population. And this led to calls, particularly from conservative lawmakers and evangelicals, to kind of bring back some of those antiquated disease control measures of yesteryear, particularly quarantine. Um, and this was resisted by HIV activists who argued, you know, that, that, that more humane measures were, were important to controlling, um, would be more effective to controlling the epidemic. But uh, ultimately, what was successful um, from conservatives was getting these laws on the books that make it a crime for people living with the disease to, um, to expose others to it. And I think the key message here is that these laws, by and large, don't require you to prove that there was any risk of transmission or that transmission occurred at all. So you have cases where, you know, it was not plausible for HIV to transmit it spitting and biting cases, for example, where people are going to prison for, you know, 5, 10, 20 years um, for harmless contact. Um, and so that's kind of the world we live in today. We're living with the consequences of the fear and stigma of the 1980s. Hmm. And, and how have things changed since the 1980s in the health sphere sense that ought to make us, I mean, there, there's one question about whether you approach the, the policy from this stance in the first place, right? Why, why punish people for a medical issue? But we also are in a different medical context, I guess, now right. than in the 1980s. That's absolutely right. So in 1996, effective treatment was introduced that um, basically transformed HIV from a terminal illness into a chronic manageable disease. So if you're diagnosed today with HIV, your doctor will prescribe you a pill a day treatment regimen. Generally, those are well tolerated with few side effects, um, and life expectancy is pretty much normal. Um, so that's a very different world than 1985, where you know many of us have those horrible memories of people really suffering and and dying. Um, very um, hard to look at and, and unpleasant. Um, deaths. And that's just not the world we live in today. So treatment not only makes life much better for people living with the disease, it also, we now know, eliminates the risk of transmission um, to other partners once you're on that treatment. Mm -hmm. So that's the other sort of side of the coin is that now HIV is effectively not contagious if you're, if you're on these treatments. 
Um, and that has a lot of implications for how we go about thinking about using the law to punish people in these in these cases. Mm-hmm. As I said in your book, you talk about how America has often tried to control social problems punitively. Can you compare the approach to HIV to things, specific things in the past that, that look kind of like this? So, you know, one of the things that, that I try to draw out in the book is that HIV emerges at exactly the same time as the prison boom in the 1980s and where we're just using handcuffs and, and prisons to respond to all sorts of social problems, particularly drugs. Um, and so lawmakers around the country were already kind of in the mode to pass criminal laws um, where people were being sent to prison for especially harsh and long sentences um, with the idea that that was going to deter crime. And, of course, we now know that that has largely failed as a social experiment. Mm. Um, but, but HIV kind of got caught up in this broader move to punish people excessively and harshly without really a, much of a rational or evidence-based kind of basis. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. My guest is Trevor Hoppe. He is an assistant professor of sociology at UNC Greensboro. His expertise is in crime, law, and deviance, medical sociology, and sexualities. We're talking about the idea of punishing people who have HIV and other communicable diseases for not disclosing their illnesses. Is that a reasonable way to approach these issues? Is that a reasonable way to approach, for instance, the goal of President Donald Trump, who said in his State of the Union address that he would like to eliminate new uh, HIV infections by 2030, 10 years from now? Uh, As always, the number on the phones, if you want to join the conversation, is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. 1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we will work you into the conversation. We especially today want to hear from people who are infected with HIV. Uh, Call and tell us how all of this plays out in your life. Talk about how health policy plays out in your life. Talk about these laws that require disclosure. How do you handle those uh, laws, those requirements. Uh, we heard from Anka in Royal Oak in the last segment who talked about how she manages those issues. Uh, again, uh, as always, the number is 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page or go to Twitter, and we'll try to get you into the conversation here. Let's go to Megan in Warren. Megan, welcome to Detroit Today. Hello, gentlemen. Hi. Um, I have two things to say. Um, this is just another way to punish poor people who cannot afford health care to, you know, get the medication that they need. Mm. And second of all, I used to draw blood at a big hospital in Royal Oak. I was inpatient phlebotomy. And in training and in the hospital, everybody operates under universal precautions, assuming everybody is infected. There are things in place if you do get a needle stick injury or if you are exposed in some way. Um, And so it's not necessarily necessary, that sounds ridiculous, but it's not necessary (laughs) to... Right. People to know. No, I get I get what you're saying there, Megan. Uh, uh, I, I really appreciate the call, 
and the perspective, especially since you are someone who has worked in the healthcare field and has some experience with this, Trevor Hoppy, uh, address what what she's saying there. Is is that is that another reason, or is that another change we need to make um, in in policy? In in our first segment, uh, we were talking about uh, hospitals and these requirements that that people be tested if if there is any sort of possible transmission of, of, of fluid. Right. So I think that's um, a great point and important to raise, and I appreciate the caller um, raising the issue of health care providers. It sort of depends on the state in terms of the criminal aspects of the law as to what, you know, how much or how little health care providers are, are involved in this process. We do have states like Tennessee where I've seen a handful of cases where, for example, um, you know, there was a, a suicide patient in Tennessee who, who um, was upset and who bit a hospital attendant um, and was, um, was punished, was, was sentenced under the felony criminal law there, the HIV exposure law, um, for exposing that health care provider to HIV. Um, and so I do, there are cases where health care providers get sort of tied, you know, brought into this process. By and large, in Michigan, Historically, this has not been the case. Mm. The law in Michigan is, is defined um, solely around what they describe historically as sexual penetration without disclosure. Um, and that's recently changed um, under the Michigan statute. And, and we have a, since uh, December, we're living under a new um, criminal law in Michigan. Um, but even historically, you know, we haven't seen a lot of those health care cases. Uh, again, thanks very much for the call and the comments, Meg. Uh, let's go to Al in Royal Oak. Al, welcome to Thank Detroit you. today. Hi, sure. David. Uh huh. Go ahead. Oh my gosh, this, this is like pinpoint on my life. I'm sixty, you know, one years old. I met a man, you know, in my, you know, thirty years ago who turned out to be HIV positive, Hmm. I stopped having sex with him immediately because of all this riffraff and stuff. Yet, I still love him. Wow. And I see him every week. Every week. Not for sex, because I fell in love with him, and then he turned out to be HIV positive. And then his doctors tell him, with the drugs he's taking, the HIV drugs, that he's he is undeter un on what is it? Un- ex- undetectable undetectable right yeah, exactly sure. uh-huh. so that's my man yes and so and uh, I I don't know where to go now wow I mean I so Al I, d- d- is this something that you feel like uh, you know that you struggle a lot with this idea of Loving someone that you... Uh, Heck yes. Yeah. Over and over, every week. I'm HIV negative, he's HIV positive, but hmm. he's undetectable. And so I'm in this relationship where I love someone who I need in my life, and yeah. he needs me in his life. He was hit by a train, and I'm... More than willing yeah. to love him for the rest of his years. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're in our 60s. Give, yeah. give me a break. Al, what I, am I supposed to do? 
the Al, um, Al, I really appreciate the call and and the really personal story there. That's that's really remarkable. Trevor Hoppy, one of the things that leaps out to me uh, from from Al's call is you know just how personal this is, obviously, to people. Uh, it, it, we talk about it from a policy perspective all the time, <clears throat> but this is really about people's lives. Absolutely, and I think one of the exciting and and as the callers sort of talked about the a potentially scary thing for for you know our lives today is that we're living in a time where the science is is showing us that we we don't you know people living with the virus who are on treatment cannot transmit the disease so we have that science but that doesn't necessarily you know um, it's hard to kind of absorb that and change our framework of thinking when we, for so long, we were under the impression that, you know, that it was this very contagious disease that we had to be very careful about contracting. And now we have all these technologies, not just treatment, but also if you're HIV negative, and Al, I I hope, you know, you look into this, that you can take a pill a day yourself if you're not living with the disease to prevent acquiring the infection. Mm -hmm. And so we have you know, particularly um, heterosexual couples who want to have a child where one person's positive and one person's negative, that used to be really uh, challenging. There were all these medical processes, sperm washing and other procedures that, that, that people would go through to, to try to have a baby. And, and today, it's really you, the, the negative partner takes um, what's called PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis, the positive partner's on treatment, and that's really all you need. You, you, HIV is not going to be transmitted if, if both of these things are true, or even one of those things are true, if the negative person's on PrEP or the positive person's on treatment. But again, translating that science into our emotional and, and kind of sure. irrational brains is hard, and I get that. And I, and I think Al's point really raised that um, quite quite provocatively. Yeah, and, and it's it kind of reaches also into the sphere of social stigma, right? Uh, I, I could hear in, in Al's voice this this sort of echo of the strain of, of the social stigma that, that enhances that personal struggle that, uh, that he has to go through every day. Yeah, I mean, I think we lived, many of those people who lived through the 80s, the messages about HIV were not kind. I mean, they were very... Um, fueled by a particularly homophobia, but also just just all this uh, fear about these people being dangerous and mm. highly contagious and infectious. And, and I think if you live through that era and that messaging time and time again, it's hard to kind of break out of that, of that, of that thinking that, that these people are just like you and me. <laughs> they're, they're no different that they are living with this disease, but that's the only thing that makes them different. They're, they're humans just like us and um you know we can love them we can be in relationships with them and and uh you know that's the beauty of of the world we live in today and it's just hard to kind of i think for some people to to kind of wrap their minds around that okay trevor hoppy assistant professor of sociology at unc greensboro was really great to have you with us here on detroit today thank you so much for having me Mm -hmm. Up next, we're going to talk with the sponsor of New Laws to modernize the way Michigan treats 
HIV and AIDS. Stay with us and stay with us on the phones. We would love to hear from more people who are infected with HIV, living with the disease, about how these policy discussions play out in your life. Stay with us on Detroit Today. listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We have been talking this hour about HIV and AIDS, starting with the President of the United States announcing that it's his determination to make sure that there are no new HIV infections within 10 years. We then talked some about uh, disclosure policies, disclosure laws that affect people with HIV and AIDS. We want to continue the conversation in that direction now and welcome John Hoadley, who is a Michigan House of Representatives uh, member from the 60th District to Detroit today. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Stephen. Yeah. Uh, uh, Representative Hoadley sponsored HB 6020 and HB 6021, which remove the penalties for an HIV-positive person whose viral load is suppressed through treatment from a physician. Uh, Representative Hoadley, l- let's talk about uh, your your long train of work to get this done and why you think this kind of change in Michigan's law is is really important. Yeah, you know, as background, um, this is uh, this is not something that was done overnight, and it's you know I think we were able to do something because we had really good collaboration between uh, medical professionals, folks in the legal community, people living with HIV, and um, and other advocates all coming together and saying you know how do we modernize. Uh, Michigan's really antiquated laws uh, that take into account the fact now that if you are have an undetectable viral load, meaning you're in that treatment uh, and it's your and your and your viral load is suppressed, it's untransmittable. And the fact then that the the previous law in Michigan actually set up a framework that discouraged people from getting HIV uh, testing and ultimately then into treatment that the previous law allowed for blackmail, Mm. uh, uh, increased situations of domestic violence, uh, and forced folks to prove their innocence, uh, which is backwards in the way that we think of the court of law, and had multiple documented failures in the legal system. And so, you know, although I was the primary sponsor on the bill, uh, actually worked really closely with Dr. Um, Canfield, who was a state representative in the 84th district. And he and I collaborated very closely to get to a version of the bill that we hope encourages testing and treatment that still keeps tough penalties for folks who would intentionally transmit HIV, use it as a weapon in some cases, but also recognize that there are then different penalties uh, for folks uh, you know, regard, regarding whether they transmit or do not transmit HIV. Mm-hmm. So, so these are, I guess, maybe best described as modernizations of 
Michigan's existing laws about HIV and disclosure. But I guess one of the questions is, do we need these disclosure laws at all? I mean, things have changed uh, significantly since they were enacted. Why not talk about not having these kind of laws, which which add to social stigma and um, and are about punishing people for for an illness? So I think we're seeing a movement, uh, particularly in public health, that says the best point is that we should be making sure that we are getting folks into treatment. Uh, and anything that stands in the way of that uh, is actually then doing a disservice for health. You know, politically, we were definitely not at a position where um, you know, that was going to be something that was uh, be able to moving in the Michigan legislature. And I also think, you know, there is still a lot of questions about where folks want to see in an ideal world that people are disclosing you know, all of their health uh, potential uh, concerns, you know, before someone's, uh, you know, jumping into a relationship of any sort. And so, you know, I understand that, the, like, the very human emotion around that. And, you know, I get it, too. The, but the other part, too, is that we knew that Michigan's previous law was so bad that it was actually standing in the way of improving public health. It was hurting our goal of reducing transmission, which, you know, when you talk to folks and why they say they want, uh, you know, folks to disclose, um, you know, their HIV status or, you know, a whole, whole host of other issues, uh, it's because they want to, to make sure that transmissions don't occur. And, you know, what we're saying is that, uh, a lot of times, you know, it's those types of laws that penalize the lack of disclosure that then prevents people from getting tested and treated. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Dr. Canfield and I were able to really just sort of uh, work together and find uh, a piece that could thread the needle that said, you know, we can make some significant and historic advancement in modernizing our law, um, even if it doesn't go as far as some people would like or goes farther than other folks were comfortable with. I think that's part of the legislative process. My guest is John Hoadley, a member of the Michigan House of Representatives. He represents the 60th district here in Michigan, which includes Kalamazoo and Kalamazoo Township. Uh, He is the sponsor of HB 6020 and HB 6021, which removed the penalties for an HIV-positive person whose viral load is suppressed through treatment from a physician. Uh, That person is not subject to the same kinds of punitive disclosure laws that we already have here in Michigan uh, uh, under those bills. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is always the number on the phones. Tell us what you think about these laws that we have on the books here in Michigan. Tell me what you think about changing them or about whether they ought to be repealed. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Let's go to Marianne in Macomb. Marianne, welcome to the show. Good morning. Hey, how are you? Good. Um, This story hits very close to home. I have two cousins who were brothers who both died of AIDS within nine months of each other. Um. The first thing that their friends asked or said when they found out they had HIV was, oh, my God, I didn't know you were gay. And they weren't. They were hemophiliacs mm. who were infected through blood products. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
that's one thing that a lot of people don't still to this day will assume. And I'm a nurse. I've worked in infectious diseases. And a lot of people still say it's a gay man's disease. Wow. And um, I think it's that is a huge stigma we still need to overcome. Um, but we'll ne- the president will never pass this initiative until he implements a needle exchange program, which mm. his base will never go for. Yeah, that's a big. That is a big sticking point with uh, with Republican voters, Marianne. No question. It's also a big sticking point with his vice president, Mike Pence, who, as governor of Indiana, ended an important needle exchange program and uh, saw that the consequences of it, in fact, were a spike in HIV infections. Uh, Marianne, I really do appreciate the call and the comments, uh, Representative Hoodley. Talk about. The other kinds of things that we um, we might be thinking about doing here in Michigan to help meet this goal, this ambitious goal that the president put out there. And you know, and Marianne's story with the the loss of uh, the brothers, and you know, it, it is something that we've heard so many times hmm. uh, in doing this work. So many families have these types of stories, and what we know is that if we really want to be the generation that ends HIV transmission, and we can be. We have to take an all of the above approach. So, you know, it's about making sure that uh, in Michigan we can do harm reduction strategies, uh, potentially like needle exchange. Uh, we know that we are going to need to make sure that we're having accurate and scientific, scientifically reasonable conversations about uh, sexual health, uh, you know, and starting uh, with age-appropriate materials and moving up through life as we go. We also know that we need to continue to fully fund all of the treatment and prevention efforts through the, that the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services have been doing, and frankly, expand them so we make sure that more people can both receive treatment and stay in compliance, hmm. which is key. And then, it, you know, it's about ending the stigma that's associated with HIV, uh, with uh, homosexuality, uh, with a whole bunch of other um, social drivers that are there for whatever reason keeps someone from getting the appropriate health care they need. And the good news is we have all of these tools right now. The question is whether we're going to use them appropriately. Hmm. And I know there's advocates across the state of Michigan and across the country who've been working on this for literally decades. Uh, and, you know, if we can build some more bridges and put a past uh, some of these political fights, we could get something done. OK. Representative John Hoadley represents the 60th district in Kalamazoo. Thanks very much for being here with us on Detroit Today. Thank you for having me. That's going to do it for me today. I will be back tomorrow when we will continue our shows of health issues and health policy. Uh, Join us then. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station, a community service of Wayne State University. Talk with you again tomorrow.